as we continue our series uh, walking through the Bible and understanding God's big picture, um, I want to uh, remind us that we're covering a huge, huge uh, chunk of the Bible in, in these few weeks. And uh, remember, we are tracing this theme of the kingdom of God as God's people in God's place, under God's rule, and enjoying God's blessing. And um, I've been wanting to tell parents and grandparents, too, that there is a great uh, children's story Bible that does the exact same thing. Uh, This one, the Big Picture Story Bible, uh, is based on the book that I'm basing this sermon series on, and it traces that that same theme of the kingdom of God, God's people in God's place, under God's rule, and enjoying God's blessing, all the way through the Bible in, in a very simple way that kids can understand. And so, since Jesus said uh, that unless you are like a child, uh, you can't receive the kingdom of God, uh, I'm going to give us an opportunity to, in humility, like children, receive an overview of this little section that we're talking about today. I'm going to read you a Bible story, okay? So, we'll start here. God was with David, and God gave David victory over his enemies in other battles. David, the mighty warrior, became king over God's people. David ruled over God's special place. Do you see David singing to God? He is thanking God for keeping his promises. You're doing a good job. Now that God's people were in God's place, it seemed that soon they would become a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. David was amazed at how good God was. David wanted to do something nice for God. David decided to build God a house. But one night, God sent word to David. He didn't want David to build him a house. God said that David's son would build the house instead. Then God surprised David. God promised to build David a house, not a real house made of bricks or wood, but a kingdom, God's kingdom. And then God surprised David again. God promised him that someone from David's family would live forever as God's king. If that weren't enough, God surprised David again. This forever ruler would be the promised one who would bring God's blessing to all the peoples of the earth. God's surprising promise made David very happy. He thanked God and the promise was written in God's holy book. After David died... David's son Solomon became king. With gold and wood, he built God a great house. It was a beautiful place called a temple. This temple was where the people made blood sacrifices for their sins. When God saw that great sign, he would forgive or pass over the sins of the people. 
After the temple was finished, God came down in a cloud. The people were happy and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. A queen came to see Solomon, his palace, and the temple he had built. She asked him lots of questions, and God gave Solomon wisdom for them all. The queen was amazed and greatly helped by all he said, and was blessed by God for having come. The queen of Sheba. You see, God was keeping his promise to Abraham. He had already made Abraham into a great nation, and he had given Israel the land, and now God's king was bringing God's blessing to other peoples of the earth. Does this make you wonder if Solomon might be God's forever king? Could he be the promised one to bring God's blessings to everyone? We'll have to see. Father, would you help us this morning um, to think together and to, and to know what you're trying to say in this part of the story about your place and your king. Uh, we thank you for your word, uh, but we come to it humbly, un- knowing that apart from your spirit, we can't understand what you're trying to communicate to us. I pray that in these few minutes you would help communicate uh, part of the larger, bigger picture to us so that we might know um, how to love the Jesus of this story and how to live in and with him in this story. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're looking today at... uh, the part of the partial kingdom, uh, which has to do more with God's uh, blessing through the king. And so we are, um, we're going to cover <laughs> Numbers through Second Chronicles today. You all right? You're going to be here for weeks on end. No, you're not. Um, we're going to talk about God's place and then God's king. Um, Fall in East Tennessee makes my heart very, very happy. And I've talked to several of you who said, this is your favorite time of year. But you can't really know fall unless you're in a place like East Tennessee, right? We had no fall in Texas. There were signs of the fall in Texas, but that's a different story. Um, I uh, I have longed to live here again uh, for a while. And uh, it's weird, but there's something about giant rocks all over Signal Mountain that gives me joy. I love that I can look out of the back of my house, and there are giant rocks protruding out of the earth, and they make me feel happy. I was driving somewhere yesterday. I think I was driving over to the Payne's house for something. I'm driving by, and there's these huge rocks just coming out of people's yards. Big rocks make me happy. Trees make me happy. Green and trees that change colors. Now, when the leaves fall, I may not be so happy, but it'll be worth it. Um, 
Anna loves to go and drive, and we'll be looking for her. Where are you? Where is she? Where are you? Call her. Where are you? I'm on the brow. She loves to just go sit, park her car on the brow, and just sit out there and look out there and spend time with God. Why are we like this? Why do we like place so much? Why do oceans make Christine's soul rest? Why is the beach her happy place? Um, actually, I was talking to uh, Richard Nelson, and, and he reminded me that, that there's actually scientific proof for why bodies of water uh, make us feel restful. So I looked it up online. There's a book called Blue Mind, the surprising science that shows how being near in, on, or underwater can make you a happier, healthier, more connected, and, and better at what you do. That is an extremely long title. Um, I'm not sure about the underwater part, but um, being near a body of water, there's just something that it does to my soul, makes it rest. Being on water out in the ocean where I can't see land, that's not so much restful. But what is it about that um, place? Why is, why is that so important? Um, David Brooks uh, wrote an article earlier this week in, New York, in the New York Times, and he said this, one of the signature facts of the Internet age is that distance is not dead. That's kind of counterintuitive. You would think, well, we, we can connect with people all around the globe. Um, but he says, no, place matters as much as ever and much more than we ever knew. The typical American adult lives 18 miles from his or her mother. To some of you, I'm sorry. To some of you, that's great. The typical American lives 18 miles from their mother. A typical college student enrolls in a college 13 miles from home. A study of Facebook friends nationwide found that 63% of the people we friend on Facebook live within 100 miles of us. And then he, he throws this in. He says, Americans actually move less these days, not more. So he says that place matters as much as ever and actually much more than we ever knew. Um, Hannah Anderson on the Gospel Coalition said this in an article. In fact, if you go to the Gospel Coalition website, there's a whole section on a theology of place. There's all these articles about that. It's fascinating. She said, made from the dust of the earth, we're forever linked to it and can no more escape its boundaries than we can escape ourselves. In fact, we each owe our existence, at least in some small way, to geography. We can't trace our heritage without simultaneously tracing the map, the places where our forebears lived and loved, forever bound up in the strands of our DNA. Place matters as much as ever. We were made for place. The Garden of Eden was a physical place of beauty where we could enjoy physical, embodied community and purpose with God and other people. Adam and Eve walked with God and with one another in the garden. They worked with God and one another in the garden. And you'll remember that we've said the Garden of Eden was meant to be the temple of God. 
the, the place where God and people dwelt together. Adam and Eve were to cultivate and care for the garden just as the priests were instructed to serve and guard the temple. Um, they were to keep evil out and maintain a holy place for God and His people to live together in shalom, peace, harmony. And you'll remember that we've said that God restated His desire over and over again. You will be My people and I will be your God. And you'll remember that we know where the story is headed. In Revelation 21.3, it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's where we're headed. Dwelling with God in a place forever. And now, in this part of the story that... Uh, we read this morning that Betsy read in 2 Samuel 7. In this part of the story, God is promising a place of rest for his people. This is what he said. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from, that time I, uh, from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from your enemies. And so, we were made for place, and God is doing what it takes, even though we were kicked out of God's place, Adam and Eve were. God is making provision in this part of the story for a place. But you have to remember, too, that in order for God to be present, to dwell with his people, they're sinful people, he's a holy God, there has to be something, some way that he is able to dwell in their midst without them being destroyed. And so, you'll remember that uh, in the wilderness, he instructed them to build a tabernacle, a tent. And so when you, you heard in the reading earlier that God was saying, I've been wandering around in a tent all these years. Have I ever asked for a house? This is what he's referring to, the temple, I mean, the, the tabernacle. And you can see that pillar of smoke. God's glory, His presence would rest on the Holy of Holies, which is the little cubicle 30 by 30 by 30 room that's in the very heart of the tabernacle uh, where the presence of God uh, rested, where God dwelt. Um, and uh, ultimately, what Solomon would build is is this version of that, a more permanent place. And then the inside of it looks like this. So this part uh, where the altar of incense is and the table of showbread toward the, the right side of this picture, that's called the, the holy place. And the floor was covered with pure gold. The walls were carved with garden imagery, flowers and palm trees, and angelic beings, they were to represent the Garden of Eden. And not just the Garden of Eden, but the Garden City where we will all live one day forever. So, this is, not only is the promised land, Canaan, God's place, and Jerusalem, God's place, but this temple would be God's place. 
And then the Holy of Holies is the throne room of God uh, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. Um, and those, uh, that room had cedar walls covered in pure gold. In fact, scholars say that as you went into the temple, the closer you got to the Holy of Holies, the more gold was used. As you got closer to the throne room of God. And in that ark, uh, in that box, was kept, first of all, the staff that Aaron used, that God used, and it was a reminder that God had rescued his people, God's people. And inside that ark were also the tablets of the law, God's rule. God rules by his word. And inside was a jar of manna that was kept to remind them of God's blessing. So God's people, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing, all represented inside that ark to remind them this is what it means to live in the presence of God. But in order to have a relationship with that holy God, there had to be a place where blood was sprinkled to cover the sins of the people, and that was the lid, the mercy seat of the ark. Um, The blood was sprinkled from the sacrifice so that God would then pass over the sin of his people. God wants to live and love with his people in his place. Um, But all of this, again, was just partial. This was was not the end. This was a a picture pointing forward to how God was going to ultimately do all of this. So uh, we're reminded about that in Hebrews 10. Listen to this. For since the... Law has, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have not ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So, so this provision was, was partial, was temporary. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Uh, The author of Hebrews goes on to explain, when he said, you have neither desired or taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings that are offered according to the law, he then added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ uh, once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins himself, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And the author of Hebrews sums it up here. For by a single offering, he has perfected all time for all time, those who are being sanctified. So all of this 
was a picture of this is what it's going to take for the holy God to dwell in the midst of sinful people. And for sinful people to join God in His community and mission. It's going to take the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. So Jesus is not only the sacrifice, but Jesus came and He's actually the place where sinners and God meet. John 1.14 says, And the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt. That word is actually, He tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus came to be the tabernacle where the glory of God rested. In John chapter 2, Jesus answered the Pharisees and said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. They were talking about Herod's temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But John says, Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. So Jesus is not only the sacrifice that enables sinners to meet with God. Jesus is the place where God and sinners meet. And then we learn from Paul that we, the church, are now the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know that you, plural, are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And he said the same thing in Ephesians 2, that we are a holy temple that's growing in the Lord, being built, built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so now, God dwelling in us, His people, in His church, the presence of God is mobile again. It's not just relegated to one place in one country, in one city, in one 30 by 30 by 30 cube of place. God is on the move. God's presence moves with us because he lives in us. Okay, but what are all the implications of all of that? Um, Two implications for us on that. One is that it's very easy for us to idolize our place. It's very easy for us to settle in our place. Our place is good, and whether it's Signal Mountain or wherever people love to live, it's easy to settle in and to hold on and to find life and draw life and even uh, the life of our souls from the place we live. Whether it's a mountain or a city or a house. Um, but if you remember in Hebrews 11, the author of Hebrews talking about Abraham said, by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So he was willing to to travel wherever God sent him and live in a tent because he was not content with living in a tent. He was looking forward to a city whose designer and builder is God. The author of Hebrews goes on to talk about all of these who died in faith. Um, they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. 
for people who speak like that make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. There's a danger in making your place everything and not remembering that we are sojourners. We're pilgrims. That God has a city waiting for us um, that will be a renewed version of all of this. So, my warning to us is enjoy the place where God has put us. It's good, but it's not God. And then, while you're in the place God has put you, uh, be the people of God's presence in the place he's put you. That's why Jesus instructed us to say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's asked us to be uh, the church, to be the temple of God and multiply the temple of God throughout all creation. Um, by making disciples. So, be the people of God's presence in the places he's put us. That's what we do as we wait until the day uh, we get to that garden city that awaits us. So, this place that we enjoy is, is just a taste of heaven. But the banquet is yet to come. So, while we wait for the feast of that place, God asks us to bring a taste of heaven to this place. Okay, that's God's place. What about God's king? So I thought about this um, this week. I, just as we all long for the perfect place, I think we all long for the perfect king. Listen, we're about to, in a few weeks have another election we're in that season and I don't care which side of the aisle you're on which party you belong to or whether you don't belong to a party of all this isn't about that this is about the fact that everybody of every political persuasion longs for a good leader they can trust who will do what they believe is just we all long for that you could let's take it out of the political realm and put it in uh, the football realm, which doesn't seem nearly as important. But uh, we all long for Coach Pruitt to ride in on a white horse and transform the Tennessee Vols into that great kingdom of conquering something. Everybody except Will; he likes Georgia. Um, but but do you see? We get all worked up about who's going to lead us. Who's going to Who's going to be that person? Are they good? Will they do a good job? We do it with our companies. Man, I, you might say, I would love the place I work. It's my boss I can't stand. I love what I do, but it's my boss I can't stand. We all long for uh, a good leader who will do good things. Um, it happens in the church. Um, we, we either put pastors on pedestals or we stand back and go, I don't know about that one. Um, but 
Either way, we're putting too much stock in a human leader. Um, But I think we do that because we were made to be led by King Jesus. (laughs) A good king provides safety for his people. He ensures justice for all his people. He gives unified purpose and vision to his people. And he's a model citizen. He provides an example for his people. We long for this. We were made to have God as our king. And I think this part of God's story um, highlights that longing. The book of Judges is just one failed leader after another. And, And the end of the book of Judges ends with this sentence. In those days, there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so what God is doing in that book is stirring up this longing for, is there someone, is there some godly good person who would come and lead us to be godly good people? Isn't there someone? He's creating this tension, this hunger in the story. And then when King Saul comes along, maybe that's the one, maybe that's the one. But he's not the one. His heart turns from God, and God rejects him as his king. But then David comes. David, now he's the one, isn't he? But have you really read David's story? He was a mess. He was a mess. And in this part of the story, David is kind of as close to the ideal king that you could get. And then Solomon's kingdom was as close to the ideal kingdom that you could get because when Solomon reigned, everything was at peace. None of the enemies were fighting. It was very prosperous and wealthy, and there were other kings and queens coming from the nations to see how God had blessed the nation of Israel. But did you know the rest of the story? You know how Solomon uh, began to worship all the idols that his 700 wives and 300 concubines worship. What in the world was he thinking? But it's a mess. And from there, his sons split the kingdom, and it's all downhill from there until finally, again, God has to kick God's people out of God's place, not under his blessing, but under his disappointment and curse because they would not obey his word. And so, this part of the story stirs up that longing that we all have for the great king who's good and does what is good. And it's interesting that actually David, in the rest of the Bible, becomes uh, the model of what the promised Messiah king, who would come from his line, at least a partial model of what that king would be. So what the Bible does in First and Second Chronicles and then in the Psalms and the Prophets is it kind of looks back at David at his best and says, your Messiah king will be like the best version of David, but beyond and forever. So everything you liked about David, this new king will be. Psalm 78 says that David, with an upright heart, shepherded God's people and guided them with a skillful hand. 
That's the kind of leader we long for. David's last words included these words about uh, the king who would come, or the king that God wants to rule his people. David said, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like, like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. So the kind of king that God wants for his people is the kind that would be a blessing to them, that would be like the morning light that comes and the rain that makes everything fruitful and flourish. And that's the kind of king who is coming. That's the kind of king that uh, God promised David through Nathan would come. Now, very quickly, and then I'll wrap this up. In 2 Samuel 7 that we read earlier, uh, listen to the description. This description describes Jesus, but it first describes Solomon. So it's like if you're uh, going hiking and you see this mountain peak and you're going to hike up this mountain peak and you think, that's it. That's, that's the highest point. Once you get to the top of that mountain peak, and then you look beyond and you go, oh, there's another mountain peak even higher beyond that. That's what this prophecy is like. First, it's about Solomon. He's the smaller peak. But then it's about Jesus. Listen to what he said. I will raise up for you. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Well, Solomon's going to build a house temple. Jesus is going to build us as the house of God. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, Solomon's will be forever because Jesus will be one of his descendants. But Jesus' kingdom is forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So the kings of Israel became called sons of God. Uh, were called sons of God, just like Adam was a son of God, Israel was a son of God, the king was a son of God. All pointing to Jesus, the son of God. Now this is the part that throws you off a little bit. When he commits iniquity, sin... I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before, from before you. So it makes sense when you think of Solomon. Yes, he's going to commit sin, and God will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men. Even though his steadfast love will remain and he will still keep his promise to Abraham, to David, that a king will come, even if he has to discipline Solomon. But Jesus never committed sin. He didn't deserve the rod on his back. He didn't deserve the stripes on his back. But Jesus, as our king, as our representative, took the wounds that his people deserve, the discipline that his people deserve for their iniquity, for their sin. And God says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. What are the implications of this? Because Jesus is king, 
we can resist the temptation to make idols out of earthly leaders. Whether they're politicians, pastors, CEOs, parents, coaches, all that angst that we feel about who is or who could or who should be leading us, all that angst we could take to King Jesus and say, I have a good king. I have one whose heart I can trust that even when all the leaders I'm looking at on this level are not worth following, and I can't seem to find anyone I can trust to lead me, King Jesus is in charge. And I can trust him. So, this is what I've heard from God this week through his word is, let the angst you feel about your leaders, let that angst stir your longing for Jesus. Um, and live in hope for the return of the King. Live in hope for the return of Jesus. And we do that as we turn to this table because this table is a picture of the hope that we have as we wait for the true king to come and take us to his renewed place. Remember the night that they first enjoyed this meal together at the Lord's Supper, Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So this table not only reminds us of what Jesus has done in the past to be the sacrifice, to be our temple, to be our king, but it reminds us that we have hope for the future, that he is coming back and we will dwell with him forever. Father, thank you for this good word, um, this good reminder that in Jesus we find our place. In Jesus, we have our King. So we come as needy people who are tempted to cling to places and people uh, that you've given us as if they are what we need. Would you um, instead have our hearts cling to you? And We thank you for this meal uh, that reminds us of the future hope we have that King Jesus is coming back to bring us as his people into his place. And he will sit down with us and drink this cup with us again. And until he comes, we need the communion that he gives us by his spirit in this meal together. So we ask that you would take this bread and this cup and set them aside from their normal everyday use and let them be for us again a sign and a seal of the promise of your love for us in Christ. Um, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.